0: Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Masterworks. Michael, we first had Masterworks on the podcast, I don't know, two or three years ago at this point. Scott Lenny's been on a few times. I think after our first podcast, we signed up. We bought some paintings, contemporary art. We're art aficionados now. I just had my first exit from a painting. Not to brag. Totally to brag. Albert Olin had the Doppel Build, which he painted in 2002. Masterworks bought it in January 2021 for $1.8. Nine million dollars roughly, just sold it for two point seven. That was a cool thirty-three percent gain for yours truly on a net basis.
1: Or two percent after inflation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this is a real asset. I outperformed inflation rate by twenty five percent or so. So this was my first exit. I got an email from them saying, Hey, we sold a painting that you own. Check it out. Money was deposited in my account. What are you doing with
1: the proceeds? You reinvesting?
0: I'm probably gonna reinvest in another piece of art. Now they got a taste for it (laughs) because we go into these things saying five, seven, 10 years probably, but obviously they got a good offer, offer they couldn't refuse. I'm a little jealous. I have not yet been part of an exit. It's kind of fun to see that. And I got the proceeds in there. So anyway, if you want to check out MassWorks, Invest in Contemporary Art, maybe have an exit of your own, MassWorks.io. And remember to check out MassWorks.io backslash disclaimer for more.
1: Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Elon Musk is just the world's biggest troll. I think he took a 9.2% stake in Twitter as a troll move. I firmly believe this.
1: It cost him around three bill. What's his net worth?
0: Isn't it $200 billion at this point? $300 billion?
1: So one or 2% position? Yeah, big deal. No, I'm
0: just kidding. <laughs> okay, 270000000000 <laughs> billion. He's been talking about Twitter a lot lately on Twitter. By the
1: way, so it is crazy how rich he is. That is almost throwaway money. That's one percent. It's took a one percent position, zero, basically. Cares, so Twitter surged
0: like twenty some percent in the pre-market trading today. I don't know what's up now. If you've looked, but I'm
1: I'm always curious, like how exactly does that happen? Like obviously that's because there's orders being executed at that price.
0: Got to be the algorithms that just hit the headline, but it's just like a three billion dollar position for him. But what do the algorithms say if Elon? <laughs> You're right. <will> yeah. Die? <laughs> anything with Elon. Here's the thing. So a lot of people are already, the funny thing to do on Twitter is to post, Elon, here's what you should do to fix Twitter. You should add an edit button. You should do this. You should do this. Here's my takeaway. You could probably, for certain people who are especially like the power users, I'm sure that there's some things you could do that make it better. But is there really anything you could do to change like the DNA of Twitter, to make it like a 10 times better experience if you just did these five changes? I don't know that there's much you can do. I think Twitter is what it is now. There's no going back from what it is.
1: I have a completely different take. I don't think that you can necessarily change the user experience, censoring, whatever. I agree with you there. But from a monetization point of view, I think there's so much more they
0: can do. And I'm not just oh, talking right. from about... From a business perspective, they could do it. Yes, I agree. Well, isn't that what matters? He's investing. But the funny thing is, is that a lot of people today weren't thinking of it as, oh, they could make Twitter a better business. They were just saying, oh, you can make Twitter a better experience if you just do this one thing. All right, like well, everyone has with their one there. or two things.
1: I think the Twitter experience is more or less set.
0: But, but yes, from a business perspective, there's a lot they could do.
1: I still don't understand how... I spend nine hours a day on Twitter and it has no idea who I am. Whereas Instagram, I'm on a fraction of the time and it knows me inside and out.
0: Exactly. The ad experience. There are probably four things you tweet about all the time. Like they should be giving you t-shirt ads, Nike hat ads, and Knicks ads all day long.
1: Very simple. And they don't do any of those things.
0: I mean, this guy just loves to stir the pot. How bored do you think he really is at this point where he's got so much money? What is the motivation for him to do any of these stunts? Because again, this feels kind of like a stunt, but I'm really intrigued with like he says it's going to be a passive ownership stake or whatever. But I mean, what would be more surprising to you? Elon Musk comes in, grabs a board seat and changes the trajectory of Twitter's business, or in nine months, he sells it all and says, there's nothing I could do. Which one would surprise you more?
1: I think he's out in 12 months or less, if I had to guess. I think he's probably the least bored person in the entire world. Did you see the video? of the factory in Germany from the drone footage over the weekend? I don't think he's bored.
0: I think he might be the busiest person on the planet. I mean, bored from the perspective of, I'm sure he's always thought he was going to be a successful person, but with the amount of money he has, what else can he do? So I think like a lot of the stuff that he spends his time on is stuff that it's just like, he doesn't really have to care anymore. He's got an ungodly amount of money.
1: Well, he is by far the richest person in the world at this point, by a wide I think margin. a lot of the stuff
0: he's doing is he's trying to amuse himself, is what I'm saying. For sure. So he's not going to fix Twitter for you? But I think the first thing he should do is outlaw the stealing of memes. You know when someone goes, who did this? <laughs> but here's the problem. It's like the person who you stole it from, that's who did it. The problem is...
1: That's a good point. If you steal a tweet, it should automatically at the person. They should build an algo that automatically outs the first person to do that meme. That's a good solution.
0: Here's the problem, though. He steals memes, so he can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) He's a stealer of (laughs) memes.
1: All right. So Q1 is in the books. Let's get to it. This chart comes... Great quarter, guys. Great quarter. Yeah, we did it. The best performer is the S&P 500. Although, actually, I bet you the Dow did better than the S&P. The Dow's not in here.
0: Well, value stocks, based on your... Table here, value stocks outperformed.
1: I'm sorry, you're right. The Russell 1000 value index down just 1.2 percent on the quarter,
0: and the Russell 2000 value as well also outperformed yesterday, down just
1: 2.8 percent. On the other side, Russell 2000 growth, not surprising. we'll get into all this stuff, but down 12.7 percent, and a lot, lot, lot worse for individual investors. Oh, I should say people that were selecting individual stocks,
0: not if they're buying energy names. I'm sure there's a lot of people doing that, right? I don't think they're in the growth index. That's the thing, though. Do you think? That there will ever be a point where people come in and say, like, I'm chasing performance. Energy stocks are going crazy. Now I'm going to find it. Like, I feel like you can't get excited about something like energy stocks in the way that you can about tech or some other biotech or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess because just mentally, you must be thinking that what's the upside on an energy trade? If I absolutely crush it 40%, I'm making that up. Whereas with some high flying tech stocks, you could do 40% in a week. Speaking of bored, my dog is snoring up a storm. Oh my goodness you okay
0: does your dog sleep in the office often can you see her yeah (laughs) dogs have the best life don't they (laughs) just all right bloomberg did
1: an article on by the way sorry
0: not to like bring down the but i'm getting a lot of now that i talked a couple weeks of my dog had passed and had to put down the existential questions from my kids especially my son is constantly asking what's he saying about like well heaven and dying and well, if we all die, because our dog in dog years is 100 years old. So he thinks that everyone, when they turn 100, is going to die. And he said, who's going to live in our house when we turn 100 and die? <laughs> wow. and, and saying, it's okay if I die, because then I can go be in heaven with Ella. <laughs> I'm not ready to answer these types of existential questions yet. Are you?
1: No, that's tough. <sighs> no. All right. So Tiger Global, what does it say? They fell 34% in the first quarter.
0: Is that what it was? Yeah. In the first quarter, you put a little more work into this than I did, but does that surprise you? Is that a lag because of some private marks in their portfolio or what?
1: No. So from the Bloomberg article, Tiger Global's particular undoing was sticking closely to tech companies, particularly China. So JD.com, for example, they put $200 million into this company in 2019, eventually produced a $5 billion profit. So it's the fund's largest holding. Okay. So JD fell 20% last year or whatever. JD got killed. So they said, in hindsight, we should have sold more shares across our portfolio in 2021 than we did. That's from what their investor letters. They were the poster child for over-indexing, buying everything. And I think that's a little bit unfair. People are saying that like, they're just spraying and praying and they're a levered bed on all this stuff. And Mario Gabriel did a really good piece on how they're moving so quickly. One of the things that they did was outsource a lot of their due diligence and gave them speed and the ability to be nimble. And, But anyway, what I thought was interesting was that since 2017, and I think it might even be worse if you started 2016. I'm sure you could pick and choose starting points to whatever. But from 2017 to today, they've underperformed the Qs by a ton and even S&P 500. So since 2017, the NASDAQ, 19% a year. S&P, 12.7 a year. Tiger, 6.5% a year. Ease. I guess I would ask, like, I honestly don't know. Are they long only? Are they closer to market neutral? I assume that they have like a huge long bias.
0: I would assume to be long. I would assume people aren't paying Tiger to hedge, but that surprises me. So I asked this to you and Josh on Slack this weekend when we were doing some back and forth on this. Do you think the NASDAQ 100 is now harder to outperform than the S&P?
1: It depends on what it does.
0: Right. But the big five are what? 40% or more? Or the big six at this point? If you're one of these tech-heavy funds, that's your bogey at this point. How many people are looking at like their venture fund or their private equity fund or whatever, their crossover fund, and saying, oh, great, you guys did 15% a year. The Nasdaq just did 25% a year for the last 10 years, or whatever it is. But look at this chart. Even from
1: 2017 to 2020, they were outperforming the Nasdaq, not by as much as I would have thought.
0: So this year, you said they were down 34%. The Nasdaq was down, what, 9% in the first quarter? The Nasdaq 100? It's not getting killed nearly as bad as some of these individual stocks, it's still holding up really well. To me, it seems like the S&P 500 on steroids because it's all those same big companies at the top for the most part.
1: So anyway, I guess the takeaway is like what we already know that investing is difficult for everyone. Yes. They have more information, more access to capital than probably anybody in the world or they're certainly on the upper they obviously end. They have of- a
0: wonderful PR machine as well because they're in stories all the time. There's constantly stories written about them.
1: All right. Moving on. Long global, short USA, this chart comes from, this is the title of the chart, from Bank of America. What it does is it shows the US divided by the rest of the world. And the chart has gone parabolic. It's really been going up for years. I guess you could say almost decades at this point. What can turn the tide? Is this just like our tech companies relative to everything else?
0: For the last few years, it's been growth versus value in the US. It's been the big back and forth and can value outperform. I feel like Stocks outside of the U.S. are now even more hated than like value stocks were for a while. Like value stocks have had the run, because I mean, since two thousand eight, especially stocks overseas have just lagged horribly.
1: We've given the stat in the past from nineteen seventy to two thousand eleven in U.S. dollar terms. The S and P five hundred and the international index, EFA, whatever, AQUA, were neck and neck over a forty year period. Like a dollar invested was even. And different paths, of course, but even from 2011 to today, the U.S. is up like, I don't know, 3X, 4X?
0: Yes. You talked to the guy from who be at Morgan Stanley the other day, Adam Parker, on the Compound and Friends, and he talked about, like, why would you own international stocks if you could just own different sectors within the U.S.? I still don't believe that that's kind of the Bogle framework, too, I think, just owning U.S. stocks because 40% of their revenue comes from overseas. I still think the idea that you get a diversity of not only like sectors and valuations and businesses, but investors in those companies. I think that there's something to that. And obviously, it's like you're getting a currency diversification as well. That's the thing. How many people thought the dollar was going to collapse? Remember, following 2008, because of all the Fed actions and the dollar's only strengthened. And that's part of it, too. Usually, when the dollar is going up, international stocks are going to do worse, especially from the US perspective. And when the dollar is going down, that's when international stocks tend to outperform.
1: If somebody is going to say, I just can't own international stocks, I'm not going to fight you too hard. I understand the motivation, but I can't get there. I think that we spoke about this, the other episode, diversification sometimes starts really badly. And it goes in and out of favor. And this has been out of favor for a long, long time.
0: I'm watching this show on Apple called Pachinko. and Called what? Pachinko. Pachinko. Yeah, it's like a game in Korea, I guess. And the story spans two different timeframes, early 1900s and then 1989 in Tokyo. And... Going into that 1989 period in Tokyo, when Japan was on top of the world, and they were like 40-some percent of world equity markets. They were enormous. And now they're, I think, back under 10. That's like the risk. Everyone always does to us, like, now show Japan. Like, that's why you invest in international stocks is because of Japan. I don't think the U.S. could have one of those. That was probably the biggest bubble of all time. But like, that's the risk that you're just the concentration risk of, you just never know. That's why I diversify internationally.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you could go back in time, there'd be no reason to own international stocks, obviously, but we didn't know <laughs> yeah. that. And now with all of these companies at multiple trillions of dollars, is now the time to say, you know what? I don't want to own anything else but US stocks. I don't know. That's not it's what also, I It's also
0: the biggest difference is just the technology sector. So if tech underperforms, I would imagine international stocks are going to outperform. That'd be my guess.
1: Okay. Let's talk about the yield curve. So we've got inversions coming all over the place. I feel like there's a new one reported every single day. The five to sevens, the two tens, did an intraday for a second. So Jim Bianco has this really good chart showing how stocks react to an inversion of the twos and tens. And I usually think that like most times are different, like that every time is different. But I think that given like Fed intervention, how has the yield curve not lost some of its predictive power?
0: I like that you said this because we had this same exact argument, I think, in like 2018, 2019. There's two responses from finance types. One is, listen, the yield curve works as a recession indicator every single time. It does. And then number two is, but what if it's different? I don't think you watched Arrested Development, did you? Mm -mm. The original first two or three seasons are like some of the best I never saw Arrested
1: Development, The Office,
0: It's Always Sunny. Okay, yeah, you missed that. that. So Tobias Funke, which is one of the greater characters, he said, this is the meme that always goes around. Well, did it work for those people? And he says, no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but it might work for us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that, that meme reminds me of thinking that this time is different. And but I have that same mentality as you, though. Like, okay, it's worked every time. But like, yeah, real interest rates are negative now. Or the Fed is so much more of a, a part of this. And all these different things. I'm like 65%
1: it still works. 35% is different this time. You
0: no, know, you have to say it's 40. Remember? 40% sorry, 60, is 40. The, That's right. the line in the sand. I'm interested to see how the bond market, like how much that can throw its weight around. If eventually... People say, why wouldn't I put all my money into one and two year treasuries now if they're yielding just as much as the ten and the thirty? Does the bond market fight back a little bit?
1: Pushing rates down?
0: Yeah, like I think we thought that would happen. Why isn't all the money from bonds going into short duration bonds right well, now? Well, I think because And would that push rates down?
1: A lot of this is just like mandates from like pension funds and stuff like that.
0: Right, that they have to. Maybe that's yeah. the problem. But I mean everyone else, I guess. So you know the great thing about doing financial content for as so long as we have? What's up? If something happens, one of us has probably written about it before. So I looked. Are you about to quote yourself? Yes.
1: (laughs) Allow myself to quote myself.
0: August 2019, I wrote a piece called You Probably Can't Use the Yield Curve to Time the Market. So I looked, I did this for fortune, I guess. I looked back when the yield curve was inverted in the past and how long it takes for a recession. And it's basically anywhere from 10 to 22 months for the last five times this has happened. That was kind of the average. So yield curve inverts 10 to 22 months later. We go into recession. But Fama and French, Eugene Fama, Ken French, who have that efficient market hypothesis that is 100% accurate. Markets are always efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you differently. So they ran this test back in 1975. They looked hang
1: 11. on, hang on, hang on. I have to defend their
0: honor. No, I'm just saying that Markets are efficient. Whenever something goes crazy in the market, someone will go, "Ooh, efficient market hypothesis. I told you. Like That's my least favorite thing. But no,
1: no, no. Prices are always kind of wrong, especially, yeah, stupid shit happens all the time. But I guess. My two cents is that you don't know whether prices are right or wrong. Exactly. Therefore, it's efficient. That's
0: all. Okay. So they looked at eleven major stock and bond markets to determine, like, if you could use an inverted yield curve to predict the stock market underperforming cash. So it inverts, then you go to cash. Does that work? They found like there's no predictive ability over. They looked at one, two, three, and five years.
1: Wait, Kenny French did this?
0: Yeah. They did French a back and test? Fama. Yep. And they looked at this across the world to... This yield curve signal underperformed in 19 out of 24 world XUS back tests as well. Their baseless premise was buy and hold is still probably a superior strategy than trying to use a yield Shocking. curve. I can't
1: believe that that's where they landed. I cannot believe it.
0: Hey, sometimes it's good to have a reminder. <laughs> buy and hold is honestly the simplest, dumbest strategy there is that also 95% of people underperform. 98, 99. Pretty close.
1: Yeah, listen, I don't think anybody beats the market over long periods of time. Generally speaking, don't take offense. Certainly Generally not speaking. consistently either, but it's not fun to talk about that all the time.
0: I'd like to provide it's fun to a pretend. reminder it's fun to protect okay. this one from Bloomberg was kind of shocking to me. So they said last year was one of the best years ever for profits for corporations. This is profit surged 35% last year, which that's not surprising because 2020 was so depressed. But this one got me in all four quarters of the year. This is Matt Bowser wrote this from Bloomberg. The overall profit margin stayed above 13%, a level reached in just one other three-month period during the past 70 years. Think about that. In 70 years before last year, there was one quarter in which corporate profits were above 30% on a profit margin. It did it every single quarter last year. I don't know when it was. I'm sure it's probably in the last few years. He also said employee compensation rose 11%, which is probably higher than most people would assume, but profits were up more, obviously. I would love
1: to hear... GMO's take on this because one of their biggest things was that profit margins are mean reverting. And I don't think that was like an unreasonable call. I probably nodded my head and agreed with them. And the fact that profit margins have stayed elevated for so long is certainly an outlier. And I wonder if like, I'm not saying it's permanent, of course, but that busted so many models.
0: But don't you think the majority of this is the fact that tech stocks are such a huge part of the market now? 100%, 100%. So they obviously didn't see that coming.
1: We spoke about this, I don't know, a year or two years ago. Howard Marks wrote a letter and his son was involved in this, Andrew. And they spoke about like how if you have a bearish view of profit margins or earnings or whatever, like you have to make a bearish case for tech.
0: Pretty much, yes. That's going to. And I think smart. that was
1: the outlier was like the productivity that we've seen from these companies, the Googles of the world. We've never seen that is such so far outside of the scope of anything that we've seen in the history books.
0: I don't know how you could say, because everything that can be done with tech now, someone is going to try to turn into a tech business to make it more efficient. And if we're dealing with a labor shortage, and it sticks around for longer than people think. And I want to get into the labor market in a minute here. Companies are going to have to use more technology to become more efficient. They're going to have no choice. So you think we're going to get robots
1: in hotel rooms? Like, oh, why is it the Roomba? Or is that what it's called? The Roomba?
0: Okay, so you have this thing right here about travel going to be super expensive next year. I want to talk about this. So when I was at Disney, I forgot to mention this no housekeeping. We were there for a week. The only thing they did was change the soap and shampoo in the bathroom and refill the coffee machine. But there was no cleaning of the room, no making of the beds. And then they'd give you new towels if you needed them. And I didn't know this going in. Here's the problem. And it shouldn't have mattered like that kind of thing. It's the only kind of thing that you notice if you were spoiled in the beginning. So like, Going to I don't a hotel even have
1: like, beds made. I don't even have bed's made to be honest.
0: No, honestly, I don't either. But like it's something if you've had it in the past and you're used to it and you don't get in anymore and it's taken away, then it's like you have the loss of version. You go, wait a minute, I like that. Even though I didn't need it. It's like when you're at home, how long do you let a towel go for for the shower? Like a week? Six weeks. <laughs> like and then you get <laughs> no, to the yeah, hotel. Yeah. You get the hotel and you immediately call down and you're like, Yeah, I need more towels. It's like, sir, you checked in five minutes ago. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, by but. the
1: time you leave a hotel, there's like seven <laughs> towels on the floor.
0: Yes. But so I'm saying I got used to it and they didn't clean it. Like and we were eating in our room a little bit with the kids and there's crumbs and stuff everywhere. It's like, OK, if you're not going to give me a housekeeper for a week, I need a broom or something. Or I need a vacuum. I think that's the kind of thing that people are going to be shocked by is you're probably in the future. You know, now they have to pay for overhead luggage. And that just became the norm after a few years ago. That's going to be the norm for hotels now is that housekeeping is probably going to be something you have to pay up for.
1: So we're going to Marco Island we're taking the boys our first
0: time in a couple of weeks. First time away with the kids. Should I bring a dustbuster? Maybe you should ask for it. The thing that shocked me about it is that they didn't tell us ahead of time that, oh, by the way, you're not going to get them to clean your room. Now, this is obviously the biggest first world problems ever. It was shocking to me a little bit. Our room was kind of a mess by the end.
1: Well, you can imagine what my room is going to look like. True. <laughs> Average hourly earnings in leisure and hospitality are up 20.8% over the last year. That's the second fastest pace of wage growth on record in data from 1965.
0: Jeez. Okay. So... Here's the thing. I realize everyone really, really hates inflation. People dislike inflation so much. And I think it's blinding. Are you ready to apologize? Are you ready to apologize But inflation? <laughs> no, because I think, I mean, take away one leg of the pandemic and the war and inflation was transitory. I'll stand by that. Is that moving the goalposts? Yes.
1: I paid under $6 for my gas the other day. So yeah, team transitory totally won.
0: By the way, some dude dunked on me on YouTube a few weeks ago. Every once in a while, I still go in the comments. And a guy said, I "I stopped listening when Michael and Ben were so adamant that inflation was transitory. I don't think we were adamant. I just think we said that was our take. Hang on. Now you're moving the goalposts. We were definitely team transitory. Take the L. I don't think we were adamant, though. I think we were looking at the data saying it's used cars. And now, of course, everything cut up. But so anyway, this guy said, I don't listen anymore. Watch. And I said, well, thanks. I don't know how we're going to do it without you. And he said, Wait, hold on. If he's not watching, then what was he doing in the comment section? Of course. He just checked back in. But he said, <laughs> he's, so I said, what are we going to do without you? And I commented, I said, what are you doing here? He said, my viewership is transitory.
1: Ooh. Not bad. Burn. <laughs> Good burn. Good burn.
0: Okay. Sam Stein at Politico said, a shocking data point that explains much of Biden's political troubles. More people think jobs have been lost over the last year, 37%, than those who think they've been gained, 28%. Unemployment is at 3.6%. We're probably in the hottest job market ever. Unemployment rate was 3.5% before the pandemic hit. We're basically back there. We've climbed out of the hole. It's almost, I think we created like 1.6, 1.7 million jobs in the first quarter. I think people, maybe it's a labor short. Like, what do you think it is besides inflation and labor shortage? No,
1: no, no. It's permanent. This is what it is. Remember that book, Factfulness? I think they spoke about this that people always assume that their lives are better than the rest of the world that like things are okay in your neighborhood but the world is burning around you but things are okay where you live I think it's that type of thing
0: I think that's the internet you're right I think that mentality is just kind of so this Bill McBride chart that we've shown a million times it's the percentage of job losses and you can see it's almost all the way back just that it's so crazy
1: I want to say this is like top ten craziest chart in all of finance.
0: Show someone this in 2019 and say, look what's going to happen to employment over the next two years. And they'd go... What just happened? How would you explain that? Okay. So the lowest the unemployment rate going back to 1948 has ever been is 2.5%. The analogy I made is kind of squeezing the toothpaste here. I want to go over this thing that like no one wants to work anymore. So I looked at... So Hang
1: on. Before we get there, just real quick. I forget who tweeted this. I thought I put it in here. All right. Today's job report marks two years since the US began hemorrhaging jobs at the fastest rate on record. More than 22 million jobs lost in just two months. With another beginning in March, we've now regained all but 1.6 million of those jobs. This chart is nuts. so.
0: The retort from the egg guy on Twitter would be like, "Yeah, that's cuz we printed trillions of dollars." It's like, "Yeah, yeah it worked." And it worked. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. The trillions but here's the other thing. People say no one wants to work anymore. So, prime-age US population is 25 to 54. That's like prime age. That's your when you're working. 25 to 54 is now at an all-time high, US labor force. It surpassed the amount before 55 and over. Within a stone. stone. So people say, well, a bunch of people retired early. But that is almost back back. to where it was, too. So people are wanting to work. So I looked, too, at the U.S. labor force participation rate for 25 to 54, going back to like 1950. It was like 60% back then. It's 83% now. Obviously, that's a lot of women coming into the labor force. If you believe those
1: numbers, sure.
0: (laughs) The number of people who say that on Twitter to me is... (laughs) Yeah. I don't really believe these. Okay. This is from Ben Castleman. This is crazy. The rate of wage growth among the lowest wage workers right now is remarkable. No sign of slowdown whatsoever. Look at this. The lowest wage group. Look at that growth that they've seen. Isn't this crazy? So here's another one.
1: Isn't this a huge part of inflation? Listen, this is a good thing. But people at the lower end who spend all of their money, these are not net savers usually.
0: So the highest wage earners are seeing the slowest wage growth and the lowest wage earners are seeing the highest wage growth by far. It's not even close. It's double.
1: And middle class is getting crushed by inflation.
0: Here's another one. This is from, this is a new Substack I follow. Joe Politano, you follow this guy? Mm-mm. I can't even pronounce this. Apracetus Economics. He says layoffs are at an all-time low. Layoffs and discharges. People being laid off from their job, all-time low. My friend Tamlin Smith at the New York Times wrote a piece about Nebraska. They have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, 2.1%, the lowest state. They interviewed this bartender. And she says, I'm in hot demand, baby mentioning desperate employers with a burst of a grin. I've worked at like six bars in the last six months because I keep getting better offers I can't turn down. Workers have never had this much negotiating power, not in the last 40 years. Here's like the downside of this, if you're looking for one. Kind of like I said, every inflationary spike- You don't have to look that hard. No, well, yeah, right. But I've shown this data before that the returns are better from nine percent unemployment and higher than they are from five percent and lower. So I actually looked at I've done those average returns and it kind of goes at a stair step function well, yeah, like you'd it's think. Fair market. It's counterintuitive to a lot of people though. So I looked at what are the worst returns over one, three, five, and ten years from below five percent unemployment, five to seven, seven to nine and nine and higher.
1: Basically the worst Is it outcomes. Isn't it like tech bubble
0: or six to well, seven? Yeah but kind of like the only way inflation has come down is through a recession in the past. Most recessions are not caused by a low unemployment rate, but a recession tends to start there because that's when you get excesses.
1: What would you say the probability of the Fed orchestrating a soft landing, bringing inflation down without a recession? And don't say
0: 50. <laughs> 40%. It depends what they're... If they were to say like, listen, our target's not 2% anymore, it's 3 or 4%. I think the market would actually like that. Answer and say, you know what? the question a soft landing with no recession, what's the time frame? (laughs) It's 25%. It's a low percentage.
1: Okay. So you would say 75% chance of a recession in the next, whatever, call it... If the Fed
0: says, we're going to shut off inflation, I don't see how we don't go into recession or at least a little slowdown. So you can now bet on this. We told our friends at Kelsey, we want to bet on the number of hikes. And so... They now have a bet, and it says at the end, this market is proposed by Animal Spirits. So we have our own bet. I
1: actually didn't even see this. I mean, I know we spoke
0: about this, but so now we can bet on the number of hikes? If you go there right now, so you can bet on four hikes, five hikes, six, seven, eight, or nine and above. Can you like bet like not seven?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could. Oh, okay. All right. so So I want to short seven.
0: I just want to let you know, though, 25 basis points counts as a hike. So 50 basis points would not be one hike. That would count as two hikes.
1: I get it. I get it.
0: So seven right now is the highest probability of happening based on Kelsey's numbers. What? I'm shorting that. So what's no? So you could buy no for 75 cents on seven because the yeses are all pretty low. Because So you've got 25% upside? So what is your target for Fed funds rate at the end of the year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, call two and a half, two and a half. Okay, so two and a half of that, how many hikes would that be? Divide that by 25 basis points. That's 10 hikes. So you want 10 hikes, you buy yes at 11 cents. You're going to make nine to one on your money.
1: Wait, did I say no? Count me for a yes.
0: You think two and a half percent. So again, each 25 basis point one counts as one hike. So if they did 50 basis points, that's two hikes.
1: When does this end? December 31st? End of the year.
0: This is through number of Fed hikes in 2022.
1: By the way, you just saw how the sausage is made. You just got a glimpse into my brain. I'm fading myself.
0: (laughs) I'm taking yes. You're going to bet yes and no on the same bet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that an arbitrage? That's free money.
0: Here's what I would do. I'd probably bet yes on seven, eight, and nine. And you still have a higher payout there because the combination of those is like 50. All right,
1: whatever. I'm taking the over. Apparently, I'm taking the over. Over on what? Over seven? Seven or over. I might just... Wait, hang on. This is important. Is it at least... Because I don't want to lose if I take seven and there's actually eight hikes. Do you have to nail the... You have
0: eight? to nail the exact, So That's why you have to bet uh, on a few of them.
1: That makes it very difficult. So I have to spread my bets. I right, got it. I got it. So maybe I'll do seven, eight, and nine.
0: I bet seven, eight, nine. Okay. Why was six afraid of seven? (laughs) What is it? Because seven, eight, nine? Yeah. Is that it? I got it. I've got kids too. Mike Zaccardi posted this one. This is kind of interesting. Consumer spending on energy and food. I think this might be from the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets. Food and energy. What gave it away? Does it say it on there? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's in italics and in small font. By the way, I do have better than 2020 seeing. What do you say? Seeing <laughs> eyesight.
1: <laughs> my vision is starting to go. Just really? like my hair. Okay. It's unfortunate.
0: Glasses? Glasses or contacts? I couldn't do contacts. I couldn't touch my eyeball.
1: I'm going to wait it out.
0: Anyway, right, what are we 1960, at? food and energy accounted for 27%, call it, of consumer spending. Now it's 12%. Energy peaked in late 70s, early 80s at almost 10%. It's now 4% now. So energy prices would have to more than double from here to account for as much of a budget as they did back in the 70s and 80s. Why do you think food prices were so much higher back then?
1: Inflation? No, I don't know. Well, productivity. It's way easier. Productivity,
0: yeah. It's got to be it.
1: Carl Cantina tweeted, this is from Morgan Stanley, the US car market is not a car market at all. It's a truck market. We believe the first signs of demand destruction will be with low-income consumers buying gas-guzzling trucks.
0: Good. Good. I've said this before. This is my one spend shaming thing that I do not feel guilty about. People spend way too much money on SUVs and trucks.
1: Starting price divided by mile per gallon. I've got to tilt my head to look at this. So the Chevy Tahoe. So shame Tahoe owners. The Sierra, the Silverado. Okay. Those Tahoes are like,
0: I bet right now you'd buy a new one for 90 grand. Easily, right? Yeah. Everyone at the kids' soccer and basketball games is driving a Suburban or a Tahoe. Not I many minivans.
1: I got to get a minivan
0: minivans aren't that expensive. But minivans
1: are, are they not? No. Hmm.
0: Okay. Speaking of spend shaming, here's the other side of this. So we talked last week about the fact that a lot of times your upside in retirement savings is much greater than your downside. For most people, end up with more money than they assume. It's people that start with a decent nest egg. I'm reading this book. Someone recommended it. It's called Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Have Ever heard of this? A bunch of people have recommended it to us. I don't want to talk down it. like It probably could have been a podcast as opposed to a book. His whole thing is, especially for people who are relatively well-off and wealthy, your whole thing should be trying to enjoy your money and spending it all before you die. Spend it or give it away. Agreed. We talked about this last week. Someone sent this to me, and this is a story from 2016. I think we've all heard about it. It's like this janitor bought all these stocks over time, and he, by the time he died when he was 90, he built an $8 million portfolio, and he gave it all away to a hospital and library, and he did this because he maintained a very frugal lifestyle. Now, a lot of personal finance people look at this and say, this guy is a success story. He invested in stocks that paid great dividends. He had $8 million by the end, and he lived a frugal life. Why and didn't
1: he give it away while he was alive? Here's the other think thing. Think about the satisfaction he would have gotten from that.
0: I think Ben, four years ago or five years ago, whenever I started blogging 10 years ago, would have looked at this and go, this guy is a success story. Now I look at this and I think of this guy's... That's not a success story. Like I think frugality is a disease just as much as overspending is. For people who can't make themselves... Spend, like. I agree either. like, If you don't want to spend it on yourself, that's fine. Some people can't force themselves. Like my father, if he would never had to buy another article of clothing in his life, he probably wouldn't do it. He's not a person that likes to spend money on himself. There are people that are like that. But I think then you spend your money to make other people happy or something. I don't see this as a success story as much as I would have in the past. Enjoy it a little bit. Have some fun.
1: Literally cannot agree
0: more. Someone else sent this to us, kind of on the same thing. This is an older one for Atlantic. So Michael Norton, who wrote that book, Happy Money, you read that one? Mm-mm. Really good book. Did a research report in 2018. He and his collaborators asked more than 2,000 people who have a net worth of at least $1 million, including many of those with wealth that far exceeded that threshold. How happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, and then how much more money they would need to get to a 10. All the way up the income wealth spectrum, Norton told me, basically, everyone says they need two or three times as much to be perfectly happy. That number is always going up no matter what, because there's always people richer than you.
1: This is so obvious in my opinion, once you are past a threshold, I think the studies say $75,000, whatever it is, could be 200, 300, I don't know, whatever it is. Past that point, money does nothing, literally nothing.
0: I also think your comparisons today are to everyone else in the entire world now. And you can always see someone with a little bit more than you or more vacations or more house or more, whatever it is. And I think the goalposts today are easier to move than they ever were in the past. Where in the past, you could just see people in your local community. And that was, you could have been a big fish in a small pond much easier than you can today. Now we're all fishing in a big pond.
1: Think about if you had, assuming that you're, there's a gigantic gap between not having enough money and having enough money. That's where all the happiness is. Obviously, if you can't put food on the table, money is life changing. But for somebody that's like relatively well off, what would another million dollars do for you? Exactly literally, what would you do with that?
0: I agree. Honestly, this is something I've changed my mind about a lot. As far as like personal finance goes, I was always the frugal saver person. And I've definitely changed my tune on that over the years.
1: I mean, listen, we change our opinion over the course of our life. I might change my mind again on this topic in five years. But as of today, 37-year-old Michael has no ambitions to die with a lot of money.
0: Amen. All right. One quick one on banks. Are financials doing well this year? They have to be. So credit card rates are up at 16% on average. Savings accounts are averaging 0.06% at banks. Axios did this piece on this. Basically saying banks are not pressured at all to raise those savings rates because they have more than enough deposits. We've seen all those record deposits at banks. Like they are going to be very slow. to li- Like savings accounts are basically dead at banks. And people who leave their money in there, it's just, it's complete dead money.
1: Can I tell you something? Speaking of changing rates, I actually did get gas under $4 a gallon this week.
0: In New York? Yeah. I found some places in Michigan that are like 390 something.
1: So crude came down, gas came down. Do you have any takes on that?
0: It took a lot longer, though. Why did it take four weeks? It just seems like it did. The analogy someone gave me was it's rocket ships and feathers. Rockets on the way up, feathers on the way down. Oh, interesting. Not bad, huh?
1: Bespoke tweeted this. Mortgage rates have gone from record lows to 10-year highs in a little over a year.
0: At 4.9%, the last time the 30-year fix was this high was April 2011. Pretty wild. And I think some of the stats were that it's like this is the fastest increase of that magnitude ever.
1: I don't think this will change demand for homes, but it certainly should impact prices.
0: I hope so. Redfin had something saying, like, maybe we're finally seeing a pause. And he interviewed this guy in the Bay Area. And he says, bidding wars are still common, but homes that would have been bought in 10 or more offers earlier this year are now getting half that many. A house that might have gone for 700000 over list now may go for three or 400000 over list. Wow. So it's getting so much easier for people there here's another one. New listings for homes were down 7% from a year earlier, the biggest drop since the four weeks ending February 2013, 2022. Basically, the supply just keeps going down. Record 59% of homes that went under contract had an accepted offer within the first two weeks on market, up 4 percentage points from a year earlier. I think that is the problem is the supply thing. Maybe people wait a little longer because they have the higher mortgage rates now, but the supply thing being so short still, I think this is going to be a really bizarre market for a while still
1: let's talk about our Discord for a second. So I wrote a post on this. First of all, thank you to everybody that bought NFTs. There's still plenty to buy, by the way, and all the money's still going to Noken Hungry. So this is amazing. The first batch that we sent over was like 12-something ETH. And we got a match. This was news to us, Ben. We got a match from the giving block. So we sent over 25 ETH on our first shot. We've got another six to cent. So well, I
0: think they basically said like, any crypto donations to charity will be matched up to $5 million or something like that. And it just happened to be that we timed it that way.
1: Yeah. So we've sent over $100,000 to No Can Hungry, which is incredible. So one of the things that we severely underestimated was how powerful Discord was. My only experience at Discord to date was getting rugged on that.
0: Oh, that was through Discord. That's right.
1: That was the Discord. And so I was like opposed to it. I figured that it was gonna be a lot of work for us and we just don't have the time of the day. But people are hyper engaged and it's not work. You pop in, you pop out. It's like Slack, basically. It's Slack and people are let's just read a few quotes. I'd By almost way, say we get to these yeah. quotes.
0: The Discord thing, like people had access to it, they could get in and I looked on it the first time I signed in, and all of a sudden, people are there engaging and talking to each other. It was, I thought it was going to be like, okay, we're going to have to be the ones getting the ball rolling, but it's the people in this community are having interactions with one another. It's awesome.
1: From here to 4 we'll call them animals.
0: Yes. I'm not going to cancel for that. I don't think so. It's done with love.
1: Okay. All right. I'd almost say it was a borderline genius idea. Oh, so we've got one channel called Connections, where people are just talking about themselves, and
0: so people can know This who is my age. This is what I do. Yeah. This is my job. This is where I live.
1: We can't see our listeners and we have no I mean, we hear from the inbox, but anyway. All right. I rarely post anything on social media, but I feel like this is the exact community where I feel comfortable being an active participant. Was able to help a few members with CFA study plans. So between keeping kids fed and helping our community members, feeling
0: pretty good. Here's a good one. Someone said, I've already received more from this Discord in the first week than I expected entirely. I think I have too. Same. So we got like a recommendations tab, a markets tab, all this stuff we're talking. So if you want to get in on that, buy one of the NFTs. The NFTs- Gives you access. Gives you access to the Discord. And it, again, if people are going back and forth and talking to each other and helping and off, it's really kind of cool to see the community. We did get one direct message. So someone said, hi, Michael and Ben, want to thank you both for putting this together and using your platform to help others. Like myself, I'm sure this was the first NFT purchase for a lot of people. Ben, I feel your pain navigating the blockchain world of a special request. It's my dad's 64th birthday on April 14th. My dad and I listen to your podcast every week and we'll catch up afterwards to chat about each episode. A happy <laughs> birthday message from the two of you would surely make his day. Thanks in advance of the podcast, Chris Curtis. Happy birthday were to Chris's dad. His name? We don't have the dad's name. Chris, send it out.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Chris, and happy birthday, Dad. By the way, there are still we made NFTs of Ben running in high school. So I if forgot you're not, that we
0: did this. So a bunch of people me said, too. "Hey, I got my NFT." There was the reveal, me and too. it's me scoring a touchdown.
1: And still, all of the money is going to No Kid Hungry. So, and by the way, if you want to join the community? There's still plenty of room.
0: And we got a lot of people saying this is my first NFT, so credit to the guys at Audiograph because a yeah, lot of seriously. people are saying this is the first NFT I've made. They made this process so easy for people, and they're also helping people on the back end with customer service. So credit to them for making this such an easy transition for people who've never done it before. Because yes, we had a lot of crypto noob people that were doing this.
1: Let's move on to recommendations because we've only got a couple minutes left.
0: Okay, real quick, one question that actually came from the Discord channel. When the market was crashing in March 2020, I decided that Tesla stock was the opportunity of a lifetime thanks to Kathy Wood and Tesla YouTube. I drained my savings of 250 k and bought Tesla shares with the intention of holding them for 10 plus years. This is quite a move. Fast forward two years later and those shares are now worth $2.5 million. I still think Tesla stock today is like Apple 10 years ago, but it feels insane to have over 70% of my net worth in a single company. Thinking about selling a million dollars worth and putting that into VTI index funds to hold forever. I'm not interested in exorbitant Los Angeles real estate. I already have over 5% crypto exposure. This is a good long-term strategy. Will VTI do well in an inflationary environment? 40 years old, no kids, earn 150K a year. So he's concentrating to to build wealth, diversifying to keep wealth. Love it. I think that's the first step here. The fact that you are diversifying, I know you're going to keep a little bit and let it ride, but taking some out to put it into an index fund and diversify. The inflationary thing, we'll see. Stocks can do a pretty good job against inflation, especially with high margins, I guess. But I
1: can't imagine having 70, just personally having 70% of my net worth in a stock, even the best stock, just because I would be checking it 73 times a day.
0: But I think the fact that this person is already thinking I need to diversify and doing that in a smart way, especially since they like double down and put their life savings on this. Kudos to you for that. But yeah, the diversification thing, that's the biggest part here. Yeah. All right. What do you got? Did you listen to Ben Stiller on the Flying Wall podcast? David Spade I and Dana Carvey? Oh, you did. It was great, Yeah, I
1: pulled out a quote that I love. Spade said something about the Great Resignation. He said, everyone chasing their dreams at once might collapse on themselves. I thought that was very insightful.
0: That was good. He's great. He was on Smartless last week, by the way, too, Spade. He had some really great stories. I mentioned Pachinko on Apple TV. There's no other word I can describe this show besides beautiful. It is a beautifully done show. I guess it's based on a best-selling book. The grandma from Minari is in it. And it tracks her in the early 1900s growing up in this poor village in Korea. And then Korea is taken over by Japan and dealing with that. But then it fast forward to 1989 in Tokyo and her grandson and her interacting. And it's just this family drama. And it keeps going back and forth between early 1900s and 1989. And I don't think it's a Michael show, but it's like a drama slash love story and slash kind of history lesson. It's just really, really well done. We're three episodes in and... It's just an amazing show. I can't imagine this show is not going to win a ton of awards. So good. Is this film critic Ben talking? I'm guessing critics are going to love this show. Okay, My wife and I are really into it. It's really good. Season three of Atlanta finally came back. I think three year hiatus. You're going to that show? Mm-mm. It's an acquired taste. There are going to be certain episodes where you go, what? What was the what? But I have no time to acquire a taste. I'm sorry, but there was an episode. The last episode, they went to a billionaire's party in London and it was hilarious. these rappers, Parting with Billionaire, it was just great. Finally, rewatched watched No Country for Old Men this weekend. The ending of that movie still makes me mad. It's Slightly 90% overrated. of a great movie.
1: Slightly overrated. Because people love, love, yes. love that movie. yes.
0: And I was going into it with big expectations and it delivered until the end when they don't show you what happens in the hotel. Why did they do that? I don't know. Because they're artists. Ugh, it was such a terrible ending. It's like 90% of a great movie. And I love them. And I mostly love the movie, but yeah, I agree with you. Okay, that's all I got.
1: I binge-watched. I finally caught up on Ozark. Holy moly. The next one's coming this month. Well, I know. That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for my signal. God, what a show.
0: It's awesome, isn't it? Like, that left you wanting more immediately.
1: So I'm glad that I waited. I wouldn't want to wait for too long. All right. What else? I was listening to the Rewatchables,
0: Panic Room. I rewatched that a few months ago. That's a good movie.
1: I saw that The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was on Netflix. So The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I actually preferred the original ones. It's Swedish, right? Yeah, Swedish.
0: Yes. I read all the books too. I really liked those books.
1: Love those books. I don't think that I ever planted this flag. I'm going to plant it. Okay. David Fincher is maybe
0: my favorite director. He's got to be up there.
1: Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Zodiac, Panic Room, The Game, Seven, Fight Club, Alien 3. I mean, did I say Gone Girl? Maybe I think I did. Anyway, Not bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. None of this Paul Thomas Anderson nonsense. (laughs) This guy's a filmmaker.
0: Yes. He's easily one of my favorites, too. Okay.
1: All right. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. Hey, animals, we'll see you in the Discord. (laughs)
0: Eh?
1: All right. Just trying it out.
0: Not bad. Bye. (laughs)